are perfect relationships and perfect intimacy and everybody gets along and nobody disagrees and everything's always, you know, kumbaya. And, uh, you know, if we have a disagreement, we can settle it. We can get the issues settled out and ironed out. And so we all, we all long for those kinds of relationships. However, life has taught us that is not always possible. In fact, it is not possible because um, we exchange something. We long for unconditional love. We long for security. We long for significance. And this is what God instilled into Adam and Eve from the beginning. But when they chose to... Uh, you know, another source of life rather than God, turning from their source of life, choosing to live without God, they exchanged all of that for pain and for selfishness and for corrupted interests. And because of that, that's the, the, the soul about which we operate out of. We have difficulty having relationships because I'm selfish at heart, you're selfish at heart. What happens when you put two selfish people together? Uh, there's going to be conflict, right? We both want, want what we want and the way that we want it and when we want it and how we want it and, and everything else. So what happens when you put corrupted natures together? You have conflict. And so we live in a broken world that is lacking and things are just not as they should be. And though we betrayed God, he never abandoned us because even in the garden, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, God did what? He came into the garden and he said to them, he gave a promise that there will one day come a Messiah who will begin transitioning the hearts and lives of people so that they can have relationship with their creator and better relationships with one another. And that's the gift that God has given to us. And how we relate horizontally really overflows out of how we relate with God vertically. And so Jesus came to bring relationships he came to restore and to rescue us from the consequence of sin and betrayal. So when the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the coming of this Messiah, he said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called, and he used four relational terms. He shall be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And in those descriptive names, God has said to us, I want to help you relationally. I want to help you in your relationship with me. I want to help you in your relationships with others. And so in this broken world that God choose, chose to enter into, into our brokenness, we can experience a love, a gift of God that will enable us to trust him and to love him and to allow that love to spill over into our relationships with other people. So he says we have this wonderful counselor. Why is Jesus the wonderful counselor? Because he helps us with our problems. He, he loves us. He's committed to us. He knows us. He understands. He adorned himself in humanity. He went through all the pains and temptations of life that you and I have gone through. He's not a savior who's sitting up in heaven, who's never touched the realm of humanity, but he has adorned himself in flesh, lived the life we could not live, died a death that we were supposed to die so that he would be a savior who sympathizes. 
And he's not like a counselor you would go to and say, you know, for the 40th time, this is what I have done. And they say, well, you idiot, how could you do that? Uh, how many times do I have to go, we go, have to go back over this over and over again? And, and when are you going to get it right? When are you going to get your life together? I, I feel like I'm wasting my time with you because you just can't seem to get your act together. That is never how our wonderful counselor responds. In fact, you go to the book of James in chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask of God and he will help you without reproach. In other words, he's not going to down you for coming for help and guidance in your life. And many people are afraid to come to God because, quite frankly, they've just screwed up their life so bad, they just don't think that God in any way, shape, or form could accept them the way they are. And nothing could be further from the truth. He is the counselor who wants to help guide our lives and help us to Get the most out of life with the least amount of wear and tear, especially when it comes to relationships. And then he says he is the mighty God. The Messiah was the God who could overcome all of life's dangers. When you go to the Gospel of Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark opens up in the first five chapters. It's like a UFC fight. Now, I remember when Ronda Rousey hit the UFC scene in her first seven bouts as a professional... No one got past the first round with her. So everybody's putting out all this money for pay-per-view, 150 bucks, and 30 seconds later, she's already knocked the person out. Or she's put them in an arm bar, more than likely, and they're tapping out. And so when Mark opens his gospel and he's talking about Jesus and who Jesus is, he's the mighty God, it's like round one, Jesus versus Satan, at winner, Jesus. Uh, round two, it's Jesus versus disease, uh, Jesus heals, Pfft, winner, Jesus. Round three, it's Jesus versus demons. Here's a demonic man. No, Jesus, winner, casts out the demon. Round four, Jesus versus the weather. There's a horrible storm. We're about to drown. Nope, Jesus wins. He, he calms the storm. And then it's Jesus versus death. Nope, Jesus resurrects that person from the dead. And it's almost like the gospel of Mark is op opening up and said, listen, I don't care what you throw at this Jesus he is greater and, and more powerful than whatever it is you are slinging his way. And it's almost like Mark is kind of like, um, anybody else? Anybody else want to take on Jesus? Come on. We're ready here. And this mighty God this, who over, you know, can overthrow disease, demons, disasters, whatever it might be, is the one who, who came and pushed his face in the dirt at the Garden of Gethsemane and began crying out, my God, my God, do, is there any other way that we can bypass the horrors of the cross? And yet he ends up surrendering his will to the will of the Father, and it's at the cross that God just literally crushes his son on our behalf so that we can have relationship with our Creator. And better relationships with one another. And so he is not just mighty in power but, and mighty in love, but he is mighty to save. And his true might was not shown by his ability to create the universe, all, as awesome as that is, but how he came to rescue us. And this is really the heartbeat of Luke as he opens up and is referring to the birth of Christ. And then and then Isaiah slips in there a, a, a title, a relational title, Everlasting Father, that seems kind of odd because we know that 
that God is in Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the second person in the Trinity. He's the Son. Why would the Son be called an everlasting Father? Why, why Jesus, Father? You, you typically don't refer to Jesus as Father, right? And yet the prophet says he, he shall be called the everlasting Father. And I think the reason why uh, Isaiah does that is because we, we needed a Savior to renew and to restore the Father image in our eyes. Um, everlasting Father. Many of you, some of the greatest pain that you've ever experienced in your life has come at the hands of your Father. Maybe your Father abused you. Maybe your Father abandoned you. Maybe your Father was explosive. Maybe your Father was... Um, withdrawn emotionally. Maybe your father um, just really, you just could never measure up to his standards. And, and so there was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of pain that was created between you and this relationship with your earthly father. And the problem is we tend to take the hurt and the pain that we've experienced from our earthly fathers and we project that onto the image of God. And so Jesus came into the world to project a different image of our Heavenly Father so that we get a more clear picture as to who God really is as our, as our Father. And so some of you, maybe you had very sweet memories of your Father and growing up with your Father, and maybe some of you, um, uh, they're, they're not. And so there's this emotional distance, and, and it's awkward like when you're in the same room and and especially around the holidays, you know, Christmas is coming up, and, and maybe your dad, maybe your parents divorced like mine, and, uh, you know, and then when you all get together as family, it's just like awkwardness there. There's just not really a, a sense of um, intimacy. There's just not a sense of oneness there. It's just, this, it's just awkward. It's just uh, uh, can be a bad experience during the holiday. Now, it's crazy how much our influence our dads have on us. If they, are in, if they are involved in our lives, they will shape us to our core. If they're not involved in our lives, they still shape us to our core. There is a uniqueness in relationship between a father and a child, just as there is uniqueness in a relationship between a mother and her children. And so fathers uh, yield tremendous influence um, that we don't even realize many times and. How many of you had a father? You know, see, well, this, this get, okay, it gets all of us, right? So we all had a father. Now, your father may have, have died when you're young. It, your father may have abandoned you. Your father may have not been really engaged and involved in your life. You may have had a wonderful, loving father. I, I don't know where you are on that spectrum, but Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And if you had an incredible relationship with your dad, that's an easy thing to do. But if you didn't, that's a lot more difficult. There are barriers that have been erected that now have to be broken down so that it does not, it does not create this barrier in this uh, vertical relationship that I have with my heavenly father that then affects the horizontal relationships that I have with other people. And we're going to go through some of these, um, some of these dysfunctions. Uh, and it's probably going to hit some of you, and maybe some of you, maybe not, but I, I think it, it bears to be repeated. So I'm going to talk about some uh, earthly styles of parenting or fathering 
that we come across that can create um, a sense of loss within you when it comes to relationships. It creates barriers. It, it, it can create um, anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and anxiety issues. And there's a lot of fallout that can happen. And maybe you never felt like you measured up and you're always performing and, and uh, for other people because you just never felt like you measured up. So here's the first one is the father who is... The father is never satisfied. Now, this father isn't unkind. This father is not abusive. Uh, this father is a provider, but it doesn't matter what you did. It was never quite good enough, right? If you got a C on your report card, it should have been a B. If you got a B, it should have been an A. You got an A, it should be an A+. Plus. And so it was just never quite good enough. It was always pushing you to... The, the extreme to the next limit. Maybe uh, you were athletic, and so no matter how much you accomplished in your athleticism, it was never enough. Your, your dad never complimented you on what you accomplished. He only complimented you on, or would badger you on what you did not accomplish. Well, yeah, you scored that touchdown, but you know, you should have had two or three, but you, you know, tripped over your own feet, or you shouldn't have ever gotten tackled over there. And so when maybe you're a musical person, and it was just never good enough, and it's, you're always on trying to perform, earning the love and the respect of your, your earthly father. And no words of affirmation so you begin to perform in order to gain their approval. And so, you know, parents are very image conscious when our children are small. Like when your children starts um, kindergarten, for example, you know, you, you start comparing your kids with other kids. Or maybe even in preschool, like, you know, these, this child over here, who's, they're all the same age. This child over here, can, man, they can really handle some scissors. And my child is like all over the map. They don't even know what they're doing. And this child seems to like color in the lines. My child's got everything, all, all, you know. And so parents get like uneasy because we start this comparative process. And the message, if we're not careful, that we can begin sending to our children is, um, even though unspoken, you have to achieve something to be worth something. Because if you're not achieving, you're not worth much. And I have been pastoring for almost 40 years, and I've seen this many, many times uh, in the lives of people and, and families. And it's like, um, like children, they, they come out of this, this relationship, and it's like, I was never smart enough, I was never pretty enough, I was never talented enough, I was never gifted enough. It was just never enough. It didn't matter how much I did, how much I accomplished, how much I achieved. It was just never enough. And so they performed all their lives trying to gain the approval of their father. Now think about a person who has grown up in this lifestyle, this situation, and you enter into a relationship with a heavenly father. And these are the individuals who will spend their lives trying to perform for God. If I'm going to measure up, if I'm going to be worth anything in God's eyes, I've, I've got to achieve, I've got to accomplish, I've got to, you know, I've got to do it better than everyone, and I, I've got to have the, the, the biggest and the best, or whatever it is you know, you're trying to achieve. Listen, there's nothing wrong with trying to achieve things. I'm just saying is when you get in this performance 
mode because you have in the back of your mind that whenever you do not perform, whenever you do not achieve, then it's like there's this negative, nagging, unspoken uh, voice that says, I've, I, I haven't done enough, I haven't done enough, and, and I know that God would love me more and he would be prouder of me if, if I just prayed more and if I, I, I memorized more scripture and I was so much more disciplined. And So you get on this... Um, on this Ferris wheel, you're going round and round and round. When you, listen, when you have to perform for somebody's love, it's hard to build relationship of intimacy. It's very difficult. Because the question always is, have I done enough? And when is enough enough? This is what the whole basis of salvation by works is, right? I've got to work, I've got to perform, therefore God will love me, he will accept me, and and then the question is, well, how much is enough? And when do I know that I've done enough? And, and so your self-image goes in cycles, right? So you start comparing yourself to others, like we do with our children sometimes. You compare yourselves to others, and if you compare yourself to someone else and you're, you know, you're better than they are, then you feel good about yourself. But if you're not as good as they are, then you feel bad about yourself. And so sometimes we take even this mindset into our prayer life. It's like, God, you know, I, I know I haven't prepared, you know, I haven't done real well this week, and I know I really don't deserve to, you know, offer this prayer to you, but I, I'm going to give it to you anyways. I really have no confidence you're going to answer it because, you know, I've had a really bad week, and I've not done very well, as opposed to a week you've done really well, and things have gone really good, and you feel really proud of yourself, and you come into God's throne room and say, God, I, I've got this prayer, and I thank you that you're going to answer it. See the difference? In the mindset, the difference in the relationship, you're bouncing all over the place because you're still trying to perform for God's approval, his love, his acceptance. And over time, because you, can't feel, you do not feel like you can ever measure up, you walk away. Nobody wants to be in a relationship. They, they feel like they never measure up. They're just never good enough, never acceptable enough. And over time, it just begins to die. Number two is the father who is always angry. He never knew what to expect when he got home or when you got home and he was there. And maybe it's just uh, some little thing and it just, boom, I mean, explode into anger. It's like a volcano's gone off and spews out over everyone and everything, and so you're always walking on eggshells, and maybe this anger is driven by stress at work, maybe this anger is driven by a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction, or maybe it's it can be driven by a thousand different things, unresolved hurt and pain in their own lives that they just don't know how to deal with and have never dealt with it, and it's just seething in the emotional system, and it's just like a time bomb waiting to happen, and, and the moment somebody trips it in the right way, Boom, and it just explodes. And this can be a person who, any other time, is like happy-go-lucky, wonderful thing. We lived next door. When I was in elementary school, we lived next door. We lived in a duplex, and right next to us was a family. as a father and um, three sons and the, and the mother, and their father was very much that way. Was, I mean, this guy was like golden most of the time, 90% of the time. But for whatever reason, when he, when he exploded, I mean, he exploded. 
There was physical abuse. There was verbal abuse. There was emotional abuse all spewed out all over his family. Now, he never spewed that on anyone else other than his family. But I'm telling you, when it went off, it went off in a big way. And this went on for years. And then finally one day, he calls his family out on the back porch in the backyard. And he, there in front of his family, hung himself. Now, try to get over that one. Can you imagine, um, here are children who maybe one day gave their life to Christ and they have this heavenly father image, but yet all they can think of is how angry is this God? And they read the Old Testament and they're like, he's pretty dang angry. And so... Oftentimes, children who grow up in this atmosphere become control freaks because they want to control their environment. They don't want, they don't want anybody spewing on them anymore. And oftentimes, disorder, uh, anxiety disorders are attached to those who have gone through this kind of scenario. And when you apply this to God, it, it is difficult to love a God that you fear. It's difficult to build trust in a relationship where there's constant fear and you're just wondering, you know, when's God going to get angry at me? And, and so then something bad happens and your first thought is, okay, God, what did I do wrong? Why are you angry at me? Why are you mad at me that you're allowing this to come into my life and to happen to me? Lord, what have I done? What can I do to undo it? And so there's this struggle, this relational struggle with God and it begins to spill out on your relationships with other people. And so oftentimes when people fear God, they obey him for that reason, not because they love him, not because they want to know him. They're just afraid of what he might do to them. If he's not like a good soldier and just steps up and obeys. And so there's no real love for God, no real adoration or craving or desire for intimacy. I'm just trying to keep God off my back. I do not want him to explode on me. Number three is the father who can't express emotion. This is the dad who is maybe stable, consistent, maybe very moral, not, hasn't abandoned you, hasn't abused you, but emotionally closed off. Now, this was the fathering technique of fathers, especially back in the 1950s and 60s. And that's why when you look at sitcoms like uh, Ozzie Nelson, Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, I mean, these fathers, they were hardworking men, and they would come home, but they were pretty much emotionally distant from their children. And if there was going to be any kind of emotion uh, transfer, you know, transpire between the, the children and parents, it was going to be the mother, right? So if you have a father, for example, who is shut off, closed off emotionally, and uh, Let's say you grew up and you're, you're an adult child now and you call home, your dad answers and immediately he's going to say, hey honey, uh, the, you know, the kids are on the phone and he's going to hand it off because he just doesn't know how to interact emotionally because he, a long time ago, he shut down, he was closed off and, and this was, a, for a lot of guys, this was just the way that you were raised. And there are three things every child nears, needs to hear from their father is, I love you, I'm proud of you, and yes, you are, you are good. I was 40 years old when I, for the first time, heard my father say those words, I love you. My dad, I knew he loved me, but he was emotionally detached. 
Of course, you know, my parents divorced when I was very young. Didn't see my father all that often. And even when I did, there was just, it's like the relationship wasn't intimate. It wasn't, it's just like a friendship more than it was a father-son relationship. And I, I first heard those words from my dad, and I didn't know how to react. I'm like, oh, ooh. Now, in my family, and my wife will attest to this, in my family, um, like, uh, you know, my mom raised five children, but we were not huggers, okay? We just didn't hug. It's just not the thing we did, you know? And rarely did my mother ever say, I love you, uh, even though we knew she loved. I mean, she sacrificed everything for the sake of her kids, but we weren't huggers. We, we didn't express verbal, I love you. And so then when I started dating my wife, her family's all huggers. So every time I would go over to her house... When I get ready to leave, her parents wanted to hug me. No, do not hug me. I, sure, go ahead. In fact, the first time my wife, uh, Marla, um, hugged my mother, she'll tell you, my mother just like stiffened up. Like, I don't know what to do with this. Get this girl off of me. Because there's the emotional detachment. Now, when you carry this into your relationship with God... Um, you're that type of father, and, and there's that sense of distance. It's difficult for you to show affection. It's difficult for you to open up emotionally. It's difficult for you to have conversations where you're like really going to let other people in on what's really going on inside of you because you've never had those conversations with your parents, so you've never really built that skill level as a child growing up of how to, how to deal with things emotionally. And so uh, you're pretty much like a turtle. You just kind of shut down and withdraw and try to work it out within yourself. And then, you know, if somebody pokes you enough, you might stick a foot out there uh, to test the waters, but that's about as far as you are are going to go, and so, um, yeah, so here's, here's what happens in your relationship with God. It's very difficult to relate to God emotionally. What you tend to do is to relate to God more intellectually than emotional, and so for me, it was a long process for me to be able to break down those walls in my life, and there are still some of those walls. My staff will tell you if you ask them, Greg's guarded. Now, he's only going to let you in so far. He's guarded. Now, there are a few people who've gotten beyond that wall, and I've been burned a few times, like probably most of you, but um, it, it, is, it is so healthy because this is, this is, God's so relational, right? God's so intimate. God's so feeling-oriented. I mean, even Jesus was so feeling-oriented and, and with his disciples as he's growing in them and he's maturing them and to be leaders in the kingdom of God. And also, when, you, you ha when you're shut down emotionally, worship becomes difficult. Because, like, here's how you worship. Or... And so when I was a teenager, you know, and I, I started going to church, I, of course, I didn't know anything about worship anyways, but I'm just like, or very closed off, right? This, this is the sign for don't touch me, don't talk to me, don't get near me, and I ain't singing. So well, I'm like my son-in-law, uh, Brian, I don't sing well either, so the two of us are horrible together, but all right, so here's another one, the, the father who is seldom there. He's just not part of your, their kids' lives. Maybe you, your dad walked out on you. You know, over 50% of 
homes in America have fatherless homes. There are fatherless homes, and in certain um, ethnic groups, that, that number goes up as high as 75%. And so there's just, there's just no relationship, and, and maybe your, your dad died, but when you you were young, and you just don't remember him, and he just wasn't there. Or maybe, maybe your dad was there, but he's working all the time. Or even when he was home, he wasn't home. Like, there was, like, really no paying attention to you as a child. It was just he was there, but he wasn't there. His mind was always somewhere else, or he's always doing something else. And so kids' response to a dad who is not there is fairly predictable. Um, it starts with fear and pain, and then it goes to anger, and they get really wounded, and, um, and, and, and they feel rejected, right? Nobody likes to live life feeling rejected. And so when you build a friendship with somebody, and let's say they just move away. It's not like they, you, you guys got in a fight and broke it off. They just move away. There's still that sense of rejection that just wells up inside of you. It's like, oh, I feel rejected all over again. I, I feel rejected all over again. And, and that's because there's deep... Um, unhealed woundedness down inside of your emotional system. And so this is why uh, oftentimes people personalize their rejection and then they take it out on somebody. They, it might be through a passive aggressive means or it might be they just take it out on society. And this is why, uh, I'm going to give you some statistics here, 79% of those who are in jail come from fatherless homes. 71% of those who are high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 78% who are drug abusers, fatherless homes. Do you get the connection here? Because there's this, that internal woundedness and that sense of rejection. And because there's woundedness, there is hurt, anger, bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. And so you, I, I know for me, it was just like inside, I was so angry, I, I would just take it out on anyone or anything that I could. And trusting relationships are very difficult to form when you, when you sense rejection and you dislike, you dislike authority, especially male authority over you. This is why guys who have fought, come from fatherless homes oftentimes have a difficult time holding down a job. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. They immediately come on the job and they know more than the person who's, who hired them, Right? So think about this in your relationship with God. Who's, your, who's the male authority over you? God is? Uh-uh. Not happening. We're putting the skids on that. And so it becomes very difficult to trust God, especially when the chips are down because you, in your heart, you're thinking, when I need God the most, he will not be there for me. And when you're praying that prayer, that you so desperately want him to answer, and it's not coming. <laughs> Satan has a field day in your mind. And it all says, rejected. Here's the number five. The father who's fully engaged. I mean, uh, some of you grew up with fathers who were fully engaged. Listen, don't, you don't want to make your children an idol. Your children should never be an idol. In fact, the husband-wife relationship should be the first number one priority always because if you give kids a healthy marriage, that goes a long, long way in having healthy relationships in their lives. 
So you provide a safe harbor. You have to correct at times, and you do it in love. And I know that when your kids you know, get to a certain age, they think you've lost your mind as parents, and you don't know anything, and they know everything better than you and more than you. And then they finally get out on their own and realize how hard it is. And then all of a sudden, about 24, 25 years old, they've come to realization, well, maybe mom and dad weren't quite as stupid as I thought they were. So what do we learn from Christ? Let me just... Let's, let's, let's see how Jesus, as our everlasting Father, answers these. I'm just going to hit these pretty rapidly. Rather than being never satisfied, listen, Jesus accepts you fully as you are. In other words, when you enter into this relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, the gift of Christmas, it is not on the basis of your performance. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we are saved by performance. It says we are saved by faith through grace in whom? In Jesus Christ. I do not have to earn God's love. I don't have to perform myself into his acceptance. I am accepted in God's sight through Christ. Jesus is the gift, and once I receive the gift, I am fully forgiven. I am fully accepted. I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks upon you and he looks upon me, he sees only Christ. He doesn't see my sin, past, present, or future. It's all been forgiven, all under the blood. He only sees Christ. So therefore, no matter what I do, I will not cause God to love me one iota more. And no matter what I do, can I cause God to love me one iota less. Because his love is unconditional. Now, that's hard for us as human beings to grasp because we are very conditional with our love. And that's a part of our fallenness. And this is where this vertical relationship with God can spill out onto our relationships with others. Do you remember Jesus gave this, the incident, or scripture gives us the story of Jesus when a woman was caught in adultery. She was brought to uh, Jesus, she was thrown at his feet, and those who had caught, captured her said, you know, the law says we need to stone her to death, which, okay, Jesus will give him that. So he says, well, okay, um, well, then those of you who are without sin, let's, you, you all cast the first stone. And of course, one by one, they, they drop their, their stones, and Jesus looks at this woman and says, where are your captors? They're all gone, my Lord. Where are those who can, listen, the only person who had the right to condemn this one was Jesus himself, and he was the one who refused to. He said, thou neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Now, did Jesus forgive her because of her performance? Did Jesus love her less because she was caught in adultery? No, absolutely not. Listen, God is fully aware of our sinfulness. God is fully aware of our thoughts, our motives, and the things that we do. But that's not the basis of his love for us. The basis of his love for us is his own love within himself. God doesn't have love. God is love. It's the only thing God can do is love. 
And so Jesus comes along and says, listen, you have this father, you, you have this heavenly dad who, who's, who's not going to love you more because you do right. He's not going to love you less because you do wrong. His acceptance is a gift to you through me, and, and it is a gift that is unconditional. It is a gift that is eternal that will never come to an end. Aren't you glad about that? You say, well, I don't feel his acceptance. Stop basing your relationship with your heavenly father on your feelings. You base it upon the truthfulness of God's word, period. I'm going to tell you, Satan knows how to play with your mind and to play with your emotions. You have to anchor in on God's truth. This is why we, Jesus is our wonderful counselor, right? He wants to bring us truth. The truth of how God sees us and how God views us and how God relates to us so that we can relate to him in the way that he, he longs for, in the long, way that he desires. See, Jesus doesn't see you for what you are. Jesus sees you for what you can become. And that's what he was saying to the woman who was brought to him. I see how you are, but I know what you can become. Now, I'm not condoning what you've done, but I'm forgiving it. Now go and sin no more. Become what I've designed you to become. Number two, Jesus as our everlasting father is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Right? So the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in what? Not abounding in anger, abounding in love. We see the compassion of God through the compassion of Christ. Jesus Wept over the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was an emotional guy. Uh, and because of his humanness, and, and he says, listen, God isn't this angry God in the heavenlies. And stop going to the Old Testament and say, well, God was just angry there. Uh, I'm going to do a sermon series here. It's going to be a six-week series. And it's, going, it's titled The Skeletons in God's Closet. And we're going to tackle some of these issues that people, you know, well, God's just an angry God. And he's different in the Old Testament than he is in the New. No, no. No, you're just misconstruing things, but uh, that's another time. However, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me who has seen the Father. He's displaying the Father for us, and this God who wants to relate to us. Does our Father at times discipline us? Yes, absolutely. If God sees your life careening towards something that is potentially harmful for you, just like I would with my children, I'm going to draw them back because I don't want them to experience that because it might be life-threatening. It might you know, change the trajectory of their life forever. As a good father, I'm going to protect my children as much as I can. And this is our heavenly father. He's abounding love. He's not stingy with his affection. He doesn't make you earn his love. God has always loved you. He's mad about you. Number three, Jesus is not emotionally distant, but he is emotionally engaged. I love Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his, his uh, love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Oh, can you imagine your dad like exulting over you, like dancing and loud singing? If my dad had done that, I'd just say, he's drunk again. I just know it, he's drunk again. This is what God is, because God is so affectionate for you. God is so bound up in love for you, and he, he wants you to know that he is not distant. He's not out there somewhere. He is, 
He is emotionally engaged as you will let him be. But like for me, when you are emotionally cut off, when you are emotionally shut off, you, you know, you'll put God at an arm's length and you'll kind of hold him over there. And so it took a long time for God to break down those walls and enable me to emotionally open up to him as a, as a heavenly father. But once you do, it's incredible. And here's what, here's what did it for me. The prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? The father has two sons, and this younger son comes. I want all of my inheritance now. You know, I don't care. I wish you were dead. Just give me my inheritance. I'm going to go out and do, do my own thing. And he did. And he's out there squandering all of his money and squandered his inheritance, all his wild living. And then he comes to his senses. He, I got to go back to my father. And here in the parable that Jesus gave, he says, the whole time that young son was gone that the father just kept coming out on the front porch and looking out on the horizon, waiting for him to return, waiting for him to return, waiting for him to return. And then when he finally saw him break the horizon, the father ran after him and threw his arms around him and hugged him and wept and kissed him and gave him, you know, sandals and a robe and a ring. So what, what is the message that God is giving to us is that the father could not get on with his life emotionally until he reconnected with his son. He could not rest until his son was restored. That's how passionate God is about you. He, he wants to emotionally engage and Jesus is not absent, but he's always present. That's what he says. I will always be there. I'm not going to forsake you. I know children can put you to the test, right? Psalm 2710 said, even my father and mother abandoned me. The Lord will hold me, will hold me close. So what do we do with this? Well, Listen, there is a father who loves you and can give you the acceptance, the approval, the advice, the appreciation that you're longing for. You have to, you have to receive it, though. You receive it through his son, Jesus Christ, and that begins the change to trajectory of your relationship with God the Father. So the question you have to answer is, is God my father? Now, God's not everyone's father. He's everyone's creator, but he's not everyone's father until you've made that personal step of faith in accepting Christ into your life. And then once you do that, you, and man, you embrace that. You embrace the fact that your papa, your abba, your daddy has this, this affection for you that no earthly father could ever have because of our, our selfishness and our sinfulness. And so when you come to, when you come to your, your heavenly father, you come and addressing him as his daddy. You know, my, my children, when they were growing up, I mean, they always called me dad, and there's no more endearing term. than You hear them say dad. Now, when they wanted something, it was daddy. <laughs> Even as adults, when they, I answered the phone, they say, daddy, what do you want? So when they would come to me to, and they wanted something, like maybe they wanted some money, they, they did not say, oh, most omnipotent, prominent father of the Cooper clan, thou who dost so sovereignly and magnificently bestow our heavenly allowance upon us, we beseech thee, O great creator, for a bounty of cash that we might abide in the house of the motion picture. <laughs> but this is how we try to approach God, Right? We try to get all the fancy words together, and you know, if I can just assemble this prayer right, God will answer it.
just get raw, get real. And when I was saved, I was a teenager, and I'd never been in church before. And uh, you know, the first thing they did is on Wednesday night, they put all the youth in this big circle and said, we're going to pray. And so like this person pray, you're supposed to pray, you're supposed to pray. And it's like, I, what do I pray? I don't ever pray before. I don't remember what I said, but I can tell you what, it wasn't impressive. But it caught the ear of God. And he forever changed my life because of it. So you draw strength from it. And let me just close with this. Here's one of the biggest hurdles that most of you are going to have to overcome in this father-son, father-daughter relationship, whether it's with your heavenly father, but in particular with your earthly fathers. If you are harboring anger, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, you will always shut yourself off. You can only go so far in this vertical relationship if this horizontal relationship is shut off. Now, for some of you, and I've been pastoring almost 40 years, and I, I know that a number of people, this is shut off because there was abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, a lot of things. But I'm telling you, every person I've ever dealt with, ever counseled, if you, if you do not exercise forgiveness towards your earthly father, you will hinder this vertical relationship because you just can't get past this. And everyone says, well, it's not fair. He abused me. He did this. He did that. And I'm, I'm letting him off the hook. He's not on your hook. He's on God's hook. God will render justice where justice needs to be rendered in his timing and in his way. For your sake and for the sake of this relationship and the other relationships you have with other people, you have got to forgive and get that right. Listen, you're not good enough to harbor all of this emotional anger, bitterness, and resentment. See, the word bitterness means it's like staining your soul. You're not good enough. You're not talented enough to say, well, I'll have that towards my father, but I'll not have that towards my kids or the people that I work with or my friends over here. You're not that good. It comes out in everything and in every way. I'm telling you, for some of you, the very first step, your next step, is to come before your father, your heavenly father, and say, I've got, I've got to forgive. This, this gave me so much release in my life. When I went through this with my own dad, I said, I have got to forgive. I have to move on because I just was stuck, and I couldn't get unstuck until that process took place. Let's bow our heads together. Father, um, we just come today, and God, I know that um, human relationships can be so dicey at times, um, and I, my heart goes out, uh, Lord, to those who are stuck uh, in some form or fashion in their relationships with their fathers that's hindering their, their walk and their relationship with you because of our tendency to project those things onto you. And so, God, I pray right now today uh, your Holy Spirit would enable them to experience release from that. And, and I know for some this is a scary step. It's a hard step. It's a gut-wrenching step. It is a painful step. 
God, we know that it's a necessary one. You dealt with this so much in your word. Your counsel to us is, God, you've got to let this go. You've got to let this go. We cannot stay chained to the past and move on in our future. So I pray, Father, that where forgiveness needs to happen, that God, today, someone here would begin that step, that process of releasing that once and for all. Father, we pray for healing in their heart. Pray for healing in relationships. Father, for whatever father we we may have had, whether good, bad, or indifferent, um, God, we know that there's, there's usually some woundedness there. And so, Lord, I pray that before we leave this place, your Holy Spirit will enable us to experience healing, the healing in our souls that will open up our hearts to you in more profound ways, that will no longer work for your love, will no longer try to earn your approval, but God will just rest in everything that we have secured through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And God, may this relationship we have with you become more and more intimate every single day of our lives. Which in the name of mighty Jesus, we pray and ask these things. Amen. We're going to stand together and close out um, singing. And as we're singing, uh, our altar is open for you to pray. And maybe today you just need to come and take that first step and say, you know what, I need to drop some things. I, I need to settle some things. I need to settle some issues in my life so that I'm not hindering this vertical relationship with my Heavenly Father. And, and that, that love for Him is just growing, and that's over pouring out of my life and into the lives of others. And Maybe you need to receive Christ that's your first step today. We're here as a church to help you take your next step with God. So maybe it's to be saved. Maybe it's to be baptized. We're going to be baptizing that Sunday. If you'd like to be baptized, uh, just let me know after the service. So that, let God just have his will and his way in your heart and your life today before we leave. Because I'm going to tell you what happens. You walk out of here. And I'm going to take care of that later. You won't. Okay? Let it start here. Let it begin here. If you don't want to come up here, right where you are, you can kneel down. Just bound pray but begin that process of healing in your heart let's stand let's sing and offer our praise to our heavenly father